got your Bibles uh, with you this morning. I was uh, thinking this uh, this week about all the different types of cups that we we use on a regular basis. Have you ever thought about the importance of the cups that we use? I mean, for example, some of you this week will be using solo cups, and we like solo cups, don't we? Because they're disposable and it's easy cleanup, so we we have a cup for that occasion. I also was thinking about another cup that we use often, and maybe you used it this morning before you came to church. It's a coffee cup. How many of you have used coffee cups? Amen. Yeah, you know, some of you um, think about a coffee cup, it usually holds about four to uh, ounces, four and a half to five ounces per cup, but some of you uh, were wondering why when you have that coffee pot that says 12 cups, it never makes 12 cups, it's because your cup's too big. Some of you have like a 32 ounce coffee cup. You like a lot of coffee. And so we use a coffee cup for uh, coffee primarily. And then there's another cup that we sometimes use, not very often these days, or teacups. Now, teacups have a wider opening. They're usually made out of porcelain. They were uh, really emerged around the 17th century in England. So that's more, uh, a more refined cup, you know, teacup. We don't use those as much as uh, we used to. And then there are another and very important cup that parents like, and that's the sippy cup. And so uh, parents love those sippy cups because it's supposed to be that non-spill cup that spills and leaks everywhere while you're trying to teach your children how to drink out of a cup rather than a bottle. And those are sippy cups. And so this morning, you didn't know you came to church to learn so much about cups, did you? This morning, we're going to learn about another cup, and it's the communion cup. And it's a very important cup. And, you know, I really don't think we'll appreciate uh, the cup until we understand the context and the power of the cup. And this morning, our sermon's entitled The Blessing of the Bitter Cup. And so you would say, why is the, the cup a bitter cup? And how can it be a blessing if it's a bitter cup? And so we're going to answer those questions. So if you've got your Bibles and if you would turn on or turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 17. And while you're turning there, let me just give you a little backdrop. The Apostle Paul is really... Um, chastising the church there in Corinth because of the way that they were abusing the Lord's Supper. And so he was calling them out. And uh, so we're going to take the instructions that Paul gave to the Corinthians church in the very first century, and we're going to apply it to First Baptist Church in the 21st century. Now, some of these things might not apply, but the principles do apply. And we want to take a look there at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17 and following. So if you've got your place... Verse 17 says, Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. First of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved by you may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating... Each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it 
in remembrance of me. Now, there's a lot here. We can't go over everything, but I want to give you about four or five things I want you to write down this morning. First of all, I want you to notice about, uh, about this cup as it is a cup of condemnation. It's not a condemnation of us. It's a symbolic condemnation of Christ. And let me just ex- illustrate for you. Look at verse 24. It says that Jesus took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. And then look at verse 25. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, Jesus took this bread and he broke it. Sometimes, in in just a few moments when we observe the Lord's Supper, you're going to see that we have a, a piece of bread in your cup. Uh, in your in your package, and you sometimes people refer to that as a wafer or as a cracker because it's flat. Well, it's flat for a reason, and I verified this with Vicky Simmerly, who I ask a lot of you know culinary questions, and I said, you know, Vicky, why is that bread flat? She said, well, because there's no leaven in it. You know, in the Bible, leaven was symbolic of sin, and so whenever you see that flat piece of bread in your communion package, there's a reason for it. It's because there's no leaven in it. And it was symbolic of the fact that in Jesus, there was no sin. He was the sinless, spotless Lamb of God who was broken for you and me. And then the Bible says that Jesus took the cup. Sometimes when people uh, think about Jesus taking a cup, they assume automatically that, that there was a cup of wine. But did you know that nowhere in the Bible does it say that that cup was a cup of wine? It's mentioned four times in Scripture, the Lord's Supper, and not one time does Jesus ever refer to it as a cup of wine. He calls it the cup, and he calls it the fruit of the vine. Those are his references. Now, you might want to check that later, but I only found it in one place where it used the word vine, I mean wine, and it was in the New Living Translation. I looked it up in the Greek. Their word is not there. And let me just say this to you. There's a reason why Jesus said the fruit of the vine. Do you know how to get fruit? The, the, the fruit of the, the vine out of a grape? Do you know how to get the fruit of it? The juice out of it? You have to crush it. You have to crush it. You have to, you have to press it. And for the juice to flow out of a grape, it must be crushed. And the Bible says that Jesus was broken and crushed for our sin. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, it says this. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Now that word bruised... When I look it up in the Greek, I mean Hebrew, it means crushed. Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Now Jesus was condemned for us, but it might be better stated, he was condemned as us. The cup is really often referred to as God's wrath. The wrath of God that we deserve was poured out on Jesus. Now in Matthew chapter 26, verse 38, it gives such a graphic description of this cup. Let me read it for you. In Matthew 26, 38, Jesus said, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Stay here with me and watch, he told his disciples. And he went a little further and he fell down on his face and he prayed, saying, Oh, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. And nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now, what was in that cup? What was in that cup that made Jesus buckle? What was in that cup that made Jesus shudder for a moment and say, if, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me? What was in that cup? The Bible says that when Jesus prayed in the garden, that his sweat 
became like drops of blood. You know, there's a medical condition called hematidrosis that would cause a person, when they're under extreme anguish or duress, for those uh, capillary blood vessels uh, that feed the sweat glands to rupture, and then, then that blood would seep into that sweat gland, and it would become like drops of blood. You know, WebMD, I don't know if y'all... How many WebMDs do we have this morning? Anybody? WebMD says that when a person is in a fight-or-flight uh, mode, then it, in a rare situations, this does occur. And Jesus was under extreme duress when he considered the, the, the cup that, that he was referring to. And the Bible says that his sweat became like drops of blood. And he cried out to, the, to God. He said, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Does it concern you that Jesus buckled when he thought about the cup? I mean, Jesus knew what was in store for him. He knew what was looming. He knew that very soon his beard would literally, literally be plucked from his face. Jesus knew that, that there would be a crown of thorns that would be forced onto his sacred head until the, his face turned red. He knew that he would uh, be laid bare by the beating of a whip known as the cat of nine tails. The third century historian Eusebius described the horror of what happens when a person was beaten with the cat of nine tails. He said that the cat of nine tails was a whip and, and at the end of that whip it would be woven pieces of stone or, or glass or rock or bone and then when a person was beaten or flogged with that whip it would literally just pull the, the flesh from a person's back from their shoulders to their backs of their thighs. Sometimes the beating would be so brutal that you could see the spine or the organs functioning in a person's back. Many times a person who had been flogged with a cat of nine tails would die from hypovolemic shock, and I could get it out eventually. Hypovolemic shock is when you have a massive blood loss. And then a rough cut piece of timber was laid on Jesus' shredded back for him to carry to Calvary, where he would be laid on that cross, stripped naked, bare, nailed to the cross and hung to die naked and ashamed. No wonder Jesus said, let this cup pass from me. No wonder. But you know, even as graphic and as horrific as that scene was, I still think there was another reason why Jesus begged the Father to let that cup pass. And I think it was what was in that cup. What was in the cup that Jesus was about to drink? What was in that cup that made it so dreadful? Inside that cup was all the hate, all the murder, all the bitterness, all the disobedience, all the gossip, all the backbiting, all the adultery, all the cheating, all the lying, all the idol worship, all the unforgiveness, all the sexual immorality, all of the anger, all the rape, all of our pride, all mixed in that one cup. And Jesus was about to drink it all for us. And the Bible says that the sin of the entire world was in that cup. Basically, it was a toxic concoction and, and Jesus uh, took that sin on Himself and He bore God's wrath for our sin. That's what was in that cup. God poured all of His, all of his wrath out on Jesus that we deserved. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way. He made Him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. He made Him to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. If you want to know where the blessing is, it's because we get to be His righteousness. And He became our sin. That's the blessing. Is it fair to say that Jesus died for my sins? Yes. 
But it's also fair to say that Jesus died because of my sin. You know, it's fair to say that Jesus died for me. But I think it's more accurate to say that Jesus died as me. Jesus became my sin. And thank God he gave us his righteousness. You know, I had a bad dream. This is not part of my sermon notes, but I had a bad dream Friday night. I dreamed I showed up at church and I was going to be preaching about this sermon this morning. And I was unprepared. And I was not even just unprepared. I was not even clothed for church. I mean, I had my, like my, my, my pants on with my undershirt on and no jacket or anything. And I thought, God, I'm not ready. And I was back there trying to get ready to come out. I thought, I'm so unprepared. And I was frazzled. But you know, I think about it this way. How many of us come unprepared for worship? We're not clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We need to be clothed with his righteousness. And that's why Jesus died, that he might clothe us with his righteousness. And and Jesus endured all God's wrath for us. And Adrian Rogers said it this way. If there was ever a time that Father God would want to be lenient on sin, it was on the moment that he was pouring his wrath out on his son. But the Father did not hold back. He poured all of his wrath for our sin out on Jesus on Calvary's cross. Romans 8.32 says it this way. He did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all. God poured all of His wrath out on Jesus, and Jesus cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He felt God's wrath. Now let me just ask you this. If the Father did not spare His own Son from His wrath, Do you think he will spare you from his wrath if you reject his son? In John 3.36 it says this, And he who does not believe in the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. You know what the wrath of God looks like when it's poured out on you? Revelation 14.10 describes it very clearly. It says this, He himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night. That's God's wrath. If the cup of God's wrath made Jesus shudder in the Garden of Gethsemane, it ought to make you shudder if you're not covered by His blood. Amen? And that's the symbol of condemnation, this cup. And you ask, well, how can this bitter cup of condemnation be a blessing? Well, this cup is a a blessing because another thing, it's the cup of communion. It's a cup of fellowship. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, just one page back from where we are, it says this, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body. For we partake of that one bread. What is that saying? It's basically saying that we have communion and fellowship with Christ and we have communion and fellowship with one another. And so when you take that bread and that juice into your body in just a few moments, you are having communion with Christ in the most intimate way. You're having the most intimate fellowship with Christ that you can possibly have. But we're also having fellowship with one another. We are the body of Christ. And when we have uh, communion, we celebrate 
our unity in Christ. And we do it in the context of the church body. You know, there's some people who think that a small group can go out and they can just celebrate or observe the Lord's Supper in their small group apart from the church and be separate. But look at 1 Corinthians eleven twenty for a moment. It says this. When you come together in one place. That's for us as a body of believers to observe the Lord's Supper together. It's not for a group of people to announce their independence from the church. It's to be part of the church. We are one body. And it's to be done in the context of the church because we are a body, the body of Christ. And it's when we come together. It's an act of fellowship and community within the body. The third thing I want to mention to you is is also a cup of commemoration. Jesus said... And as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. The Lord's Supper doesn't remind us of Jesus' sermons. It doesn't remind us of his parables. It doesn't remind us of his miracles. What does the Lord's Supper remind you of? It reminds you of his death. You know, at First Baptist, we have two ordinances. We have baptism and we have the Lord's Supper. And you know that both of those preach a sermon about Jesus? When we baptize somebody, and when you're baptized, it is a picture of you dying to self, being buried with Christ, and being raised to new life in Christ. It's a picture of his death, burial, and resurrection. Baptism preaches a sermon. You know, a little boy one day, uh, he had gotten saved, and he wanted to follow Christ, and he wanted to be baptized. And so uh, he went to his pastor. He said, Pastor, I've become a follower of Christ, and now I need to be advertised. (laughs) Well, that's what baptism is. Is an advertisement that you have become a follower of Christ and it proclaims His death, burial, and resurrection. And when we have observed the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming His death. Verse 26 says this, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. That's what we're doing. Baptism and the Lord's Supper both point to Christ. They're symbols that remind us of Christ. These elements that we're about to partake of in just a few moments, they're not the central theme. Christ is the centerpiece. I read this past week where Leonardo da Vinci was 43 years old when the Duke of Milan asked him to paint a picture of Jesus' Last Supper. And so Leonardo da Vinci spent three years painting this picture of the Last Supper. And he did it so meticulously, as you have seen. And he painted Jesus as a center figure in the Last Supper. And Jesus' hands were outstretched and in his hand he had a cup. And so Leonardo da Vinci asked one of his friends before he let anybody see it. He said, I want you to, get, you to give me your honest opinion. What do you think? And his friend said, it's amazing. It's wonderful. He said, as I look at that, that painting, I just cannot get my eyes off of that cup in Jesus' hand. It's just so realistic. And at that moment... The story goes that Leonardo da Vinci took his paintbrush and he covered over that cup. And he said, nothing shall detract from the figure of Christ. He is the centerpiece. The Lord's Supper is a reminder that points us to the central, central figure in human history. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to give you another, uh, another point about this cup. It's a cup of condemnation. It's a cup of communion. It's a cup of commemoration as we remember what Christ has done. But it's also a cup of consecration. We consecrate ourselves before God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it says this, verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and 
the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. So this cup, what we're about to celebrate, what we're about to observe is a cup of consecration. We set ourselves apart for the Lord's work. It's a believer's observation. We participate as believers. It's for believers only. It's for those who have turned their back to this world and turned their face to Christ. You know, I think about too many people like to live with one foot in the world and one foot in heaven. You know people that way? Well, you can't serve two masters, and that's what Paul said here. You cannot drink of the cup of demons and of the cup of Christ. You cannot have two masters. You have to choose. And so, as we observe, it's a matter of, have you been set apart for Christ? Have you chosen Christ? Let me ask you a few questions. Have you consecrated yourself to the Lord? Have you, said, have you said to God, have your own way with me? Or are you still trying to live with one foot in the world and one foot in heaven? Paul says you cannot drink of the cup of demons and the cup of Christ. But this is also a cup of celebration. Now you ask, well, how is it a cup of celebration? Well, we'll look there at verse 26. It says, for as, that, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup... You proclaim the Lord's death till when? Till He comes. See, the reason we celebrate is because Jesus is alive. And He is coming again. Amen? He is coming again. And so as when we celebrate the Lord's table, we are proclaiming His death till He comes. This past week, some wonderful ladies in our church had a birthday celebration for Kathy. That was such an overwhelming experience so many of you came. So many of you just uh, really encouraged us in so many ways. And uh, some of you remember how you know, Kathy would always sit over here. And when you came in, she would smile at you, wave at you, hug you, tell you she loved you uh, regularly whenever you would see her. Well, when we had their little party for Kathy, we, all people, so many of you gave her birthday cards. And I read every word of every one to her except for one. And it was a card from Jean Norris. And Jean stays with Kathy on Mondays. And I was reading it to Kathy, and then I got to a point I couldn't go any further. And I handed the card to Diane. Good. And I said, you read it. <laughs> and then she couldn't read it. She handed it to Ellen Jordan. She said, you read it. <laughs> and this is what it said. She said, I pray when we get to heaven, I will see you laughing, smiling, And dancing. Things you cannot do here. And I don't know about you, but I think a lot more about heaven than I used to. In Revelation 21.4 it says, There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, and there shall be no more pain. For the former things have passed away. Aren't you looking forward to that day? No more disease. No more wheelchairs. No more walkers. No more cancer. No more addictions. No more viruses. No more arthritis. And no more goodbyes. Aren't you looking forward to that day? For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till He comes and He is coming again. Do you believe that? And that's the reason to celebrate. And I want to give you one last point before we observe the Lord's Supper. 
is a cup of contemplation. In verse 29, Paul gives some sobering statements. He said, For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. In other words, many have died. Now these are some very disconcerting verses. I mean, you might read these verses and say, I am not going to participate in the Lord's Supper. If many people are sick and many people have died, I'm going to stay away from it. So many people say, I just am unworthy. I know a man who would never participate in the Lord's Supper because he felt unworthy. I want you to know, none of us are worthy. Nobody here this morning is worthy of Christ. That's not what Paul was saying. What he was saying was, in context, do not take these elements in an unworthy manner. You see, what was happening in the Corinthian church is that they were treating the Lord's Supper irreverently. They were abusing it. They were treating it like it was just another 4th of, the, a 4th of July cookout. They weren't taking it seriously about what it meant and what it represented. And they were indulging themselves. And the Bible says even some of them were getting drunk. And when Paul heard about what was taking place in the Corinthian church, he was livid. He said, I cannot praise you in this. At the irreverence of the Lord's Supper. And you might think, well, thankfully we don't have to worry about that here. But there's a caution for us. There's a danger of taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And one of the ways that they were abusing the Lord's Supper was by their divisions, by their animosity toward one another, by their uh, callousness and factions that existed among the church. In verse 18, it says, When you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it, for there must also be factions among you. Now, the warning here is about harboring unforgiveness in your heart. It's not reconciling with our brothers when we've been wronged or they've wronged us. You know, there are some brothers and sisters in Christ who won't even speak to one another because of some pinned up bitterness that they have, up, have towards someone else. Paul warns not to take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. In verse 28, he says, but let a man examine himself. So let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now, you might be tempted to say, well, if that's the case, I'm just not going to participate. If I have to forgive my brother or my sister in Christ and be reconciled, I just won't observe communion. Let me ask you a question and listen carefully. Are you saying I would rather have my grudge than have communion with Christ? Are you saying I'd rather hold on to my sin than have fellowship with Christ? You say, but I've got this thing going on in my heart. I've got this uh, bitterness or unforgiveness and, and I just don't want to like some people. Well then, you bring that sin to God and you confess it. You know what God does when you confess your sin? He forgives you and cleanses you from all unrighteousness. Every sin that you cover will be uncovered and every sin that you uncover before God will be covered. Now let me ask you, you need to examine yourself this morning and confess your sin. Paul didn't say examine yourself and don't eat. He said examine yourself and then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now, I'll just say this. We don't observe the Lord's Supper every week. Some people do. The Bible says that as often as you do it, do it in remembrance. We don't do it every week. Some people may. You know, I don't clean my truck out every week either. I probably should. Sometimes I'll let several weeks go by. And you know what happens when, that, when I do that? It just starts to, junk just starts to clutter and pile up. 
And then finally I realized, hey, this thing needs to be cleaned out. You know what the Lord's Supper does for you and me? It makes us pause for just a moment and say, God, would you examine my heart? Have I allowed some stuff to get cluttered up in my life that has distanced me from you? I want to examine myself this morning and come clean. And so I want to challenge you. Is there some trash in your heart that you've allowed to build up? Is there some sin in your heart that's preventing you from having fellowship with Christ? As we prepare just a moment to observe the elements, I want to invite you to examine yourself. Confess your sin before God. Bring it to His attention. Or maybe this morning as we have our invitation, you realize I'm here. I've never accepted Christ. Maybe you've been a member of this church for years. I don't know. But you've never, you've never trusted Christ. And if you died today, you would face the full wrath of God against your sin. If that's you, would you come? I'll, I'll be delighted to share with you how to know Christ. I'd love to do that with you. Or maybe you've got some other decision that you need to make. I'll be here to greet you. And I just want to pray for us as we enter this time of, of invitation. And pray for God's Spirit to work in you. Let's pray together. Lord, we just thank you for these moments of communion that we get to celebrate and fellowship with one another and fellowship with you. And as we come to this moment, we just pray your Holy Spirit, examine our hearts, help us to confess any sin in our heart or life that we're harboring. Help us to come clean, that we might be able to celebrate and observe the Lord's Supper with purity and in a worthy manner. Lord, we look forward to the privilege to being able to celebrate this with you. And so as we come to this invitation, we pray your Holy Spirit work in people's lives. For those who are outside of Christ, Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit draw them to you. For those who are distant, I pray you bring, bring them back near. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our hymn of invitation? The one solution.